Thank you, choir. Recently, I was speaking with Dr. Robert Callis, a faithful member of our church. And as we talked, he expressed to me his concern that there are so many people in our churches who do not know the basic beliefs that they claim to believe. I shared that with him and began to think about it. And it seems to me in recent years we have replaced Scripture with entertainment and we have substituted emotion for study. I'm not being critical concerning that because I see no value in having worship services that are boring. And I don't think ours are. I see no value in having a worship service that is not well planned and well done. Emotion is a part of man, so I'm not being critical of that. So how did we get to this? How did we come to the place where we no longer largely understand what we believe? I remember as a boy growing up that there were study courses in church, that doctrine was very important, but not so much now. Why is that? How did we get to the place that we no longer understand our basic doctrine? Well, we're told that people are not interested in doctrine, and I think that there's some truth to that. And the reason I think that it is true is because truth is no longer objective, it is subjective. Therefore, there are many varieties of truth. So what difference does doctrine really make? So we we hear people say, well, that may be true for you. It isn't necessarily true for me. Or it might be true in that circumstance, but it isn't true in this situation. So truth then has become subjective rather than objective. And it isn't important to us. We are constantly told that all religions are equally good that we're going to the same place, we're just traveling different paths, so it really doesn't matter what one believes, all of them are good. Thirty-six times in the Bible it stresses the importance of doctrine, and that's just the number of times that the word doctrine itself is used. And so during the next few weeks we're going to look at some of those fundamental beliefs that we say we hold as believers. For instance, the Trinity. Do we worship one God or three? So we're going to look at the Trinity. We will also look at man. Where did he come from? What is he doing here? Is he going somewhere? Does he have purpose? Is man basically good? Is man basically evil? So we will look at the doctrine of man. And then Satan. Do we really have an enemy whose name is Satan who tempts us? What about heaven and hell? Is there such a place after we die that is called heaven or hell to which we will go when we die? But today we're going to begin with the Bible. And the reason we're going to begin with the Bible is because whatever we believe comes out of the Bible. So let's see what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse number 13. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All right, as we look now, the Bible is authoritative. Augustine wrote, when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. You see, we know what God says because He has revealed His Word to us. In fact, the Trinity is involved in the revelation of God's Word. It is inherent in the Father. John chapter 1, verse number 1, In the beginning was the Word. It is inherent in the Father. It is incarnate in the Son. In John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh. Did you hear that? And the Word, and the Word became flesh. That is the incarnation of Jesus. And dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it is inherent in the Father, it is incarnate in the Son, and it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, some scriptures given to us objectively through external manifestation, for instance, when God gave the Ten Commandments, According to the Scripture, God wrote the Ten Commandments with His own finger. So some Scripture is given to us objectively. Some Scripture comes subjectively through the experiences of the authors. Much of it comes mystically, in other words, through visions that have been given. In my devotional time now, I'm reading in the book of Ezekiel, trying to figure out some of what he was saying. I've not gotten there. I'm sure that you have, but some of it I... I, have not fully understood. But much of Ezekiel's writings were the visions that God gave to him. And in Ezekiel 1.1, he begins, The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And then he begins to describe these visions that he had. Much of Daniel's writings is visions that God gave to him. The Apostle Paul said that he had a vision of the third heaven. He said, I was caught up into the third heaven. And he tells us about the vision that he had concerning this. So God's word then is revealed to us and the Trinity is involved in the revelation, inherent in the Father, incarnate in the Son, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. God revealed his word to us and his word reveals God to us. Okay? So God then has revealed his word and in turn, His Word reveals God. A little girl was drawing a picture. Her mom was watching her. And her mom said, Honey, what are you drawing? She said, I'm drawing a picture of God. She said, Darling, nobody knows what God looks like. She said, They will now. Well, that's what the Bible is. God revealed to us His Word. His Word reveals God to us. Now, creation says to us that there is a God, but leaves us confused about that God. For instance, when there are tornadoes, hurricanes, and tsunamis, and things of that, does that mean that God is mad at us? Is that God's judgment? Is God angry and He is punishing us? Is that, is that what those things mean? 
these acts of God that we hear about? Does that mean that God is angry? What about when there is a famine or there is a drought and people are suffering? Does that mean God does not care? That God's not concerned about what we are going through? So creation then says to us that there is a God, but the Bible tells us who he is. And the Bible says that he he loves you. I have never gotten over the idea that God loves me. Why in heaven's name would God love me? I understand why he'd love me more than he does you, but you know. Why does God love us? I, I don't know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves you so much. That's what the Bible says. Now, you see, the, the, the God of creation, we're confused about that, but the Bible says you need to understand that God loves you. He loves you so much that he gave his son for you. Does God care? Now, the Bible says that he has compassion, Matthew nine thirty six, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them. In that passage of Scripture, the Bible says that, that Jesus was looking at the multitudes and they were suffering. It was as if they were being chased by wolves and they were suffering. And the scripture says that he was moved with compassion. He was stirred with compassion. What does the Bible say about God? It says that he loves you. That he has compassion for what you're going through. And he is our heavenly father. The Lord's prayer begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God wants to be our heavenly father. So the Bible then is revealed from God and reveals God to us. It is inspired. And Paul's admonition to Timothy here is in direct response to the inspiration of God's Word. We see the source of inspiration in verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. So, according to what the Bible says, the Scripture is inspired by God. That he is the source of inspiration. In fact, God said or the Lord spoke appears 680 times in the Pentateuch, 418 times in the historical books, and 1307 times in prophetic writings. It is inspired by God. Now look to the extent of that inspiration again in verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. The word all that is used there literally is translated every, every scripture is inspired by God. Not just parts of it. I heard Zig Ziglar say one time that there are those people who believe in spot inspiration, that it's inspired in spots. And I have been inspired to spot the spots. No, that's not what the Bible says. It says that every scripture is inspired by God. And the reason that is important is that there are those who will say, well, I believe in heaven, but not in hell. I believe in the love of God, but not the justice of God. I believe in mercy, but then reject the holiness of God. All Scripture is inspired of God. What does that mean, inspired? The word inspired, W. Vine says, is two Greek words, God and to breathe. 
So it means that God has breathed His Word. He breathed His Word. The interesting thing to me is that God breathed the Word, but He used man to write it down. And He did not void the author from His own personality in His writing. Now, the Word is breathed from God. The Word comes from God. But He uses the personality of the one who is writing. Now, that became very obvious to me when... uh, Back years ago when I had a Greek class, and you begin studying Greek by translating John. And John wrote in very simple terms, little children, my little children. He says that repeatedly in First John. And so his, his, his writing is very simple. But then after a while we got to the Apostle Paul, which was an absolute nightmare. Because Paul uses, he makes up words. You can do that in the Greek language. He makes up words you'll not find anywhere else. And you have to try to figure out what it is. But the point that I'm trying to make is that that God breathed the word, but he used the personality of the individual author who wrote the word. And throughout our history, the giants of the faith have believed in the inspiration of God's word. Luther, Calvin, Wesley, they all believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God. James Boyce, Baptist educator and pastor of this church, believed in the inspiration of the Bible. He wrote, believing equally in its verbal inspiration, that means that the words, he believed in the inspiration of the words, it should occupy such position in our colleges and scientific schools as to lead them to devote attention to the subject, and to stand forth as champions of the Scripture. So whenever we're looking at the Bible, it is revealed. God revealed it to us with the Trinity. It is inspired and it is reliable. The Scripture is reliable. Until 1947, the best translation we had was the Masoretic translation. It was found in Tiberius. It was translated somewhere between 500 and 900 A.D. Now, here's the problem. That was the best translation we had, the Masoretic text. The problem was that there was a gap of 1,300 years between the completion of the Hebrew Bible and the Masoretic text. So there was 1,300 years. It was assumed that during that time, that 1,300-year period, that the text was translated retranslated, copied, and recopied. Therefore, there would be many discrepancies within the text. And then in 1947, there was a Bedouin boy in Qumran who found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written between 200 and 150 B.C. So they're a thousand years older than the Masoretic text. So the scholars began studying, assuming that there were going to be these differences in the translations. So they began to study and to compare. What they found as they studied the Dead Sea Scrolls and compared them to the translations of texts that we had, that they were 95% identical. And basically the only differences were in spelling which is sort of what Jesus said in Matthew 5:18 for truly I say unto you until heaven and earth pass away 
Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The Bible is, is reliable in text and also in its content, though we sometimes don't totally understand the content. I can give you a couple of examples just for your consideration. One is the genealogy of Jesus. It, it has been believed by some that there is a discrepancy between the genealogy of Jesus as it is recorded in Matthew and in Luke. Those are the two places where it's recorded. But upon study, you will discover that the genealogy that Matthew gives to us comes through Joseph, and the genealogy that Luke gives to us comes through Mary. Another area where they say there are discrepancies is concerning the death of Judas. Matthew records that Judas hung himself. Peter says that he died from a fall. But Matthew does not contradict Peter, and Peter does not contradict Matthew. So what would the answer be? Well, Judas hung himself over the Hinnom Valley, and there is a 40-foot drop to the bottom of it. So it very likely happened that he hung himself, the rope broke or came untied or something, and he fell to the bottom and died. It is reliable in its content. We don't always totally understand it. The Bible is inspired. Our interpretation may or may not be but the Bible is authoritative, it is reliable. The Bible is accurate. That stands to reason logically, because if God is perfect, could he then give an imperfect word? If God is perfect, he would not give an imperfect word. In the early ecumenical councils, there is no mention of Scripture. Even though they discussed and disagreed about various interpretations, not Scripture. Why? Because they all believed that Scripture was inspired of God, that it was accurate. Nelson Gluck, president of Jewish, former president of Jewish Theological Seminary and one of the great archaeologists of the world, wrote, In all of my archaeological investigation, I've never found one artifact of antiquity that contradicts any statement of the Word of God. It is accurate. Now, the, the Bible is not a book of science, but it is accurate in science. For instance, in, in medicine, doctors used to believe that some of the ailments of man was a result of having too much blood. And so they would bleed a person to get rid of the ailment. Uh, some of you think that still happens, but it doesn't in a literal sense. You remember the old barbershop that had the red, white, and red and white pole? That was a sign that you could go there and be bled. George Washington became ill. His doctors bled him three times. He died. What does the Bible say? In Leviticus 17:11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. It is accurate. What about concerning astronomy? Well, we know that the earth is suspended in space, but the ancient Egyptians believed the earth was supported by five marble pillars 
The Greeks believe it rested on the shoulders of Atlas. The Hindus believed it rested on the backs of elephants who rested on the back of a giant tortoise. What does the Bible say? Job 26, 7. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. It is accurate in science, though it is not a book of science. It is accurate in the prophecy of Jesus. It is fascinating to me to study the prophecies written about the Messiah who was to come and then compare those prophecies to the story of Jesus. For instance, that he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah wrote that, that he would be born of a virgin 700 years before Jesus was born. And when Jesus was born, he was born of a virgin. At about the same time, Micah the prophet prophesied that when the Messiah was born, he would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. And Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem. Even his tribe, the tribe from which he would come, was prophesied in Genesis chapter 49, verse number 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. It was prophesied in the book of Judah that he would come from the tribe of Judah. His betrayal was prophesied. Zechariah chapter 11, verse number 12, And I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. That was the price that Judas received for betraying Jesus. 30 pieces of silver prophesied in Zechariah. The price of a slave, about $18.00. That was prophesied before Jesus was born. His birth, his death, the place of his birth, all of that. It is prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was born. The scripture is accurate in prophecy. It's accurate. And then it is transformative. There are many books that inspire us. Do you remember when Kenneth Cooper wrote the book about aerobics and everybody started running? What most everybody started running, I People started running, you know, and getting in shape, aerobic condition. Some people are built for speed, some for comfort. I never got into that. So, But he inspired people. That's the reason that people are running, you know, and, and concerned about aerobics because of the book that Kenneth Cooper wrote. You remember the books that Zig Ziglar wrote? I mentioned him a while ago. Zig was a, a friend of mine and a, a wonderful guy. But he, he started writing about positive thinking, being positive in your thinking. And what did we do? Well, we laid aside our stinking thinking because we were inspired by that. You see, many books inspire us, but the Bible transforms us. The Bible transforms us as it convicts us of sin in our life. Paul Hovey wrote, Men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. I would agree with that statement. One of the reasons that we don't like to read the Bible is because it says things we don't want to hear. And it convicts us of sin in our lives. It convicts us. And it leads us to Jesus who cleanses us. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us 
from all sin. Isn't that wonderful that the Bible convicts us of sin, that I have sinned, I am a sinner. But it also tells me that Jesus Christ died on the cross, shed his blood to pay for my sin, that I might be cleansed. And the scripture says that God will change us. As you read the Bible, as you go to the Bible, your life will be changed. If you bring it into your heart, it will change you. So what does the Bible say? It says God loves you. God loves you so much that he gave his son to die on Calvary's cross to shed his blood. That we might be forgiven of our sin and become the children of God and have the hope of heaven. It says that God will save you there. In verse 15 he says, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, first of all, I have to repent of my sin. See, what to, to be a child of God, according to the Scripture, there is repentance of sin. The word repent means a change of mind that produces a change of direction. That I'm going in one direction, I have a change of mind and go in a different direction. It means that I turn away from sin. I repent. I turn. And then I put my faith in Jesus Christ, believing that He is who He claims to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who gave His life, that we might be saved. What does the Bible say? It says that we can be saved whenever we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And it says, today is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the accepted time. God is ready to save you, to change you, to forgive you, to make you His child. Today is the day of salvation. I love the Bible. I wish I knew it better. Because I do believe that it's God's Word. That He has revealed His Word to us and that we have life through it. So I read the Bible. As I read through the Psalms, it tells me how to praise Him. And I read through the book of Proverbs, it tells me how to relate to mankind. As I read through the Gospels, it tells me about Jesus. As I read through the letters, the epistles, it tells me how to live my life. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is God's word of life to you. Eternal life and abundant life as you take it into your heart and live it. Would you bow your heads with me, please? In just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to stand. The choir will sing. We extend an invitation. If you're here and you have never trusted Jesus Christ, I hope you will. I pray that you will. Because that is the way that a person becomes a child of God. We're going to have staff members standing up here. They'll pray with you. If you're looking for a church home, our door's open to you. We'd love to have you. If you've strayed away from the doctrine of God's Word, it's my prayer that you'll return to it. Knowing that it is God's Word. Our gracious Father, we come to this time lifting up this invitation, asking your blessings upon it. Father, I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to hearts. And Lord, for those who have never come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, maybe a historic figure, but not a personal Savior, that today they would trust you. 
Lord, bless this time and may you be honored. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to stand with me, please, as we stand together. They sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do.